0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your
1: first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting? Or just starting over?
0: On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And today, Dublina and I are going to be talking about dogs, but specifically war dogs.
1: Yes. I mean, dogs are one of my favorite topics anyway. I am are your dog. Yes. I'm the owner of an adorable Wheaton Terrier named Dooley, and I talk about him probably way too much. But that's not what inspired this podcast. Um... Actually, the news did, right, Sarah?
0: Yeah, war dogs have been in the news quite a bit lately, as I'm sure many of you have realized. After Osama bin Laden was killed and it was revealed that a war dog, more appropriately, a military working dog, was present, uh, it got people's attention. People wanted to know about these militarily inclined dogs. But it's been on our minds really for longer than that because we have quite a bit of Animal Planet content that we work on here at HowStuffWorks.com com and um, war dogs come up from time to time in those articles yeah actually one that we're going to mention
1: today came up last year when we were editing some bully breed content so that'll be something that you can read about later too
0: exactly and we even have an article on war dogs too which we'll throw to you at the end but our very own editor Allison Ladermelk recommended it to her to us and it was sort of the the final push to get us going on this topic but we've have talked about dogs before or rather Katie and Candace have more like Historical pooches of famous people. And Katie and I have talked about war horses of history. So Napoleon's Marengo, Robert E. Lee's Traveler, Babieca, who is El Cid's horse. But in case you haven't listened to that episode, we really didn't get much beyond the Civil War because horses, of course, even though they were used for thousands of years in battle, all around the world, eventually became obsolete military technology. That is not the case with dogs.
1: No, war dogs, and as Sarah mentioned, they're now more properly called military working dogs, were used probably as far back as when humans domesticated the gray wolf. And they're still used today since there's still no better means of detecting an IED than
0: a dog's nose. Yeah, even the most complex technology can't compete. And there are a few qualities, and you're going to see these pop up in the different dogs, the different individual dogs we talk about, but a few qualities that make dogs useful for warfare throughout history. One their strength and loyalty makes them really good fighters. Also,
1: their endurance makes them good messengers and their intelligence and eagerness to please make them trainable.
0: Yeah, and then there's their size, too, and that's something which, of course, varies a lot between breeds, and it makes them either really big and intimidating and strong or tiny and able to go where people can't very easily go. So, starting sort of in the early days with ancient warfare, ancient Persians, Assyrians, Babylonians, and Greeks, all are known to have used dogs in war, usually as shock troops. They'd have a line of mastiffs, which if I was fighting and a line of mastiffs came charging at me, I would definitely stop and give pause for a minute. It's probably mastiffs that you think of, too, if you're considering ancient warfare, ancient dogs in warfare.
1: Yeah, there are um, Egyptian monuments to that effect as far back as 3000 BC that show mastiff-like dogs. Caesar actually imported mastiffs after seeing them fight with British soldiers in 55 B.C., and he used them for things like bull baiting, lion fighting, things like that. Even fighting gladiators. But if you're thinking about war dogs today or even of the past century, you're probably not thinking of mastiffs. You're probably thinking of two breeds in particular that are now almost synonymous with military working dogs. These were both developed around the turn of the 20th century in Germany, and they've been used heavily in most of the century's major wars. And those are German Shepherds, which were bred by Captain Max von Stephanitz to be trainable, loyal, and intelligent. The American Kennel Club describes them as, or their characters, as incorruptible. Which
0: makes me imagine Elliot Ness' German Shepherds or something. The other one of those major breeds as the Doberman Pinscher, which they were bred around the same time as we mentioned in Germany to have high endurance, speed, and smarts. And there are a few other large, intelligent breeds that pop up from time to time. The Belgian Sheepdog, Farm Collies, Giant Schnauzers, and a few notable Mutts, too, that we're going to mention. Uh, The U.S. military now uses a lot of purebred labs because they are really good at sniffing things out. And they have that easy, friendly, calm demeanor. Well, calm is probably not the best word (laughs) for labs, but easygoing, nice. Uh, But we're not just going to talk about big dogs because little dogs certainly have their place in war history too, because as we said earlier, little dogs can go places where people can't.
1: Right. In World War One, little terriers were actually used as cigarette dogs to distribute free tobacco to troops in the trenches. And terrier breeds like Jack Russell's would also patrol the trenches for rats. So they were perfect for that because of their size and their prey drive, their inclination to exactly. hunt for those things. And
0: a little less likely to get shell-shocked than kitties. Kitties and trenches doesn't sound like a good combination. So our first dog we're going to talk about was actually a ratter. And we don't know that much about her, except that she did did her job really, really well. And this dog is now nicknamed Hatch. We don't know what her real name was. Uh, we'll discuss the origins of that nickname in a little bit. But she was a two year old who lived aboard the Tudor warship, the Mary Rose, which we've talked about before on our shipwreck episode. The Mary Rose, as probably a lot of you remember, sank in battle July 19th, 1545, and most of the men on board went down with the ship, as did Little Hatch. However, the Mary Rose Trust recovered Hatch's skeleton and eventually reassembled it and now is in the process of analyzing the skeleton, or the skeleton is being analyzed by experts to try to figure out what kind of breed it is.
1: Yeah, and according to Rear Admiral John Lippyot of the Mary Rose Trust, quote, analysis of Hatch's bones suggests that she spent most of her life within the confines of the ship. It is likely that the longest walks she took were along the quay side at Portsmouth. So not a very exciting life for poor little Hatch, but since she was found wedged in the sliding door of the carpenter's cabin... That's the nickname. Yeah, that's the nickname. Some have suggested that she was the carpenter's pet or maybe a ship mascot, so at least maybe she had an okay life on ship. But evidence of only partial rat skeletons aboard the wreck suggests that, pet or not...
0: Hatch was a ratter, as Sarah mentioned, and a pretty good one. If you're surprised that they had a dog as a ratter, as I kind of was, Cats, apparently, were considered bad luck in Tudor times to have aboard your ship. Although, since the Mary Rose sank anyway, I don't know if it really would have helped or hurt much more. But now we're going to go ahead, fast forward way past Tudor times into the 20th century. And that's where the rest of our dogs' lives are going to take place in their stories. Yeah, so we've talked about
1: dogs used in ancient warfare and a dog on the Mary Rose. But when you fast forward to the 20th century, as Sarah said... They're pretty much, it's pretty much not done, dogs in warfare, at least in the U.S. Even though stateside kennel clubs had lobbied for dogs in combat, there was no formal war dog program during World War One, for example. But there were still some mascot dogs here and there in the trenches with U.S. troops and America's first canine war hero, a bull terrier mix named Stubby, was one of them.
0: So Stubby got involved in the war effort during the spring of 1917, kind of by accident. He just wandered onto the grounds of Yale, where a training camp for the 102nd Infantry, 26th Yankee Division, was taking place. And he seemed to be a few weeks old, definitely astray, and he proved to be a hit with the soldiers. They let him stay, and supposedly the dog was, became one of them pretty quickly, too. He would drill with them, he learned to salute, and Private J. Robert Conrad, Roy became Stubby's primary caretaker, and they named him Stubby because of his cropped tail, so a little affectionate ribbing there with the... The dog. So when it was time for the 102nd Infantry to ship out to Europe,
1: they smuggled Stubby aboard the SS Minnesota by pulling him through a porthole with a rope. So they went to great lengths to take their friend along with them. And after they landed in France, Stubby stayed with his unit, went to winter training with them and then joined the troops in the trenches. He participated in 17 engagements altogether in four World War One offensives. And he never seemed to want to flee even with all that shelling going on around him constantly. So there are several stories about Stubby's war adventures, including how he got gassed once. And this made him more sensitive to the smell of gas and better able to detect gas attacks. So he would be able to detect them and then sort of warn his fellow soldiers about it. But perhaps the most famous story about him is one that involves the capture of a German spy.
0: Yeah, and there are a few different versions, slightly different versions of that story. According to one, Stubby was sleeping in a trench one night when he suddenly awoke and ran off into this small patch of brush. And his caretaker, Conroy, heard a voice cry out soon after and went to check and see what was going on with it he found Stubby with his teeth sunk into the rear end of a German spy who had been busy making a map of the Allied trenches so the soldiers disarmed the spy Stubby however wasn't so willing to let go and finally had to be coaxed pride off of off of the guy <laughs> yeah and
1: you can see pictures of Stubby online if you look him up and he's not a very large dog so it's kind of funny to imagine this little dog hanging off the back of someone <laughs> (laughs) one's butt, basically. He does look like
0: a dog who could could bite in and hold on though. He does,
1: yeah. I mean, that Animal Planet content that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode that we edited last year, and it was a Batch of content about bully breeds, and that's where Stubby came up in in our research with that. And one thing that people kind of associate with bully breeds is that they have a really strong bite. So it was in his blood. Yeah, so I think you're probably right about that. But Stubby received many honors for his heroics. After the armistice, he met President Woodrow Wilson when the president visited his regiment in France on Christmas Day, 1918. And he returned with his unit to the States in 1919. Stubby did, that is. In 1921, General John J. Pershing awarded him a gold medal, and later Stubby was designated an honorary sergeant. So that's usually how you see his name put out there.
0: Meanwhile, though, back in the States, Stubby was participating in veterans parades and went to American Legion conventions. In 1922 and 1923, he became the official mascot of Georgetown University because his still master, Conroy, was attending law school there. And by 1926, Stubby died, but he was not forgotten. He was stuffed, although that's not exactly the best way of putting it. Instead, a plaster cast was made of his body, and his skin was mounted over that cast and his cremated remains were interred within the cast kind of complicated.
1: Yeah, and for a while he was on display at the National Red Cross Museum. And then in 1956, Conroy presented him to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. And today he's on display at the National Guard Armory in Hartford, Connecticut. So you can still go check out what Stubby looked like.
0: So Stubby made it into World War I sort of by chance. He had to hitch a ride, essentially. But just because the U.S. didn't officially use dogs in World War I combat didn't mean that other countries didn't use dogs a lot. So the Germans deployed approximately 30,000 dogs during the war, the French and the British, another 20,000 dogs. And we're gonna talk about a few of those dogs, a few French dogs in our next entry. Yeah, and French dogs are interesting
1: because they had a lot of different roles in war. They'd work as sentries, ratters, and cigarette dogs. Some were Red Cross casualty dogs or mercy dogs who would bring medical supplies to troops injured on the field. Prusko, a French Red Cross dog, for example, supposedly saved the lives of more than 100 men in a single day, dragging some of them back to the trenches. But in World War I, one of the most important responsibilities of war dogs was actually message delivery. They could be trained to deliver messages either one way or to carry messages back and forth with two handlers in different units.
0: You normally think of messengers in World War One as carrier pigeons, but unlike carrier pigeons... Dogs obviously couldn't avoid the gas clouds by just flying over them. So these messenger dogs were sometimes outfitted with gas masks to protect them while they were carrying these important notes between camps. But one of the most famous messenger dogs from World War 1 was an all black English greyhound working collie cross named Satan. And Satan turns out to be a really good dog. So a terrible name. I guess, I guess she just got that name because she might have been a little scary looking, but During the Battle of Verdun, Satan's French handler and a small garrison that was with him were cut off from the rest of their troops and were under terribly heavy fire behind enemy lines. They had run out of their pigeons and they had nothing left to pass along the specifics on their situation, like the coordinates of the German forces that were shelling them that needed to be silenced in order to relieve the garrison. So it really seemed like a hopeless situation. They were just going to get shelled. And until they were all gone. Yeah, finally, though, the men
1: saw a black dot racing towards them across the field, and it turned out to be Satan in a gas mask delivering a message from the French. But when he was almost to safety, Satan was hit in the leg by a German sniper, and he laid down on the ground. Supposedly, according to the 1925 Harper's Magazine article that the story was originally told in, when Satan's handler saw the dog shot, he got to the top of the trench to call him himself to try to urge him on, to try to get him to keep going. The handler was shot dead, but not until after Satan heard his voice and did, in fact, get up and start himself on three legs.
0: Yeah, and he arrived finally. His neck tube contained a message that said, for God's sake, hold on. We'll send troops to relieve you tomorrow. But more importantly than that message, he had a basket with two... It's always described as two very frightened pigeons. I'm sure they were frightened. And the French used these pigeons, dashed off two identical messages that had the coordinates of the Germans, and sent the birds off. One pigeon was killed, but the other safely delivered the coordinates and thus saved the garrison. So it was a joint effort of that pigeon and Satan, but managed to, to help them out. So that was World War
1: I. But by the time World War II rolled around, the Army finally agreed that it needed to involve canines in its efforts. So they started what was called the Canine Corps, and the first official canines were enlisted by their owners. Owners actually donated more than 40,000 dogs to this cause.
0: Which is pretty amazing to think of, just signing your dog up to, to go off to war. But yeah, I guess- you don't know if he's going to come back or not. I mean, in an environment where you're probably sending your kids off, too, it wouldn't have been so strange.
1: Exactly. One of those dogs that was donated to the war effort was Chips, a German Shepherd mix who was born and basically just living a dog's life in Pleasantville, New York. How
0: appropriate. (laughs) Right,
1: whose owners enlisted him in the Canine Corps.
0: But from Pleasantville, Chips went into training and got sent to Morocco. And later he was part of the security force that protected Roosevelt when Roosevelt met with Churchill at Casablanca. But Chips is probably best known for the work he did in July 1943 with General George Patton's 7th Army as they came ashore in Sicily. So the morning of July 10th, Chips and his handler were pushing inland into Sicily from the beach. And They approached this hut, or at least that's what it looked like, that was up on a hillside. Suddenly, though, the hut erupted with machine gun fire. It was really a disguised pillbox.
1: All the human soldiers at this point hit the ground, but Chips broke free and he stormed the hut from the rear. Moments later, several Italian soldiers spilled out with Chips kind of going at them. He was supposedly tearing at the arms and the throat of one of them. And Chips' handler called him off, but the American side took the prisoners. But Chips didn't come through this unharmed himself. He had a small scalp wound and powder burns on his coat, too, which kind of suggested that he had been fired at point blank. But... He didn't get to rest right away. You would think that he would be done at this point. But after taking that nest, Chips helped his handler capture 10 more prisoners later in the day. So naturally, he celebrated across America. Chips, however, he wasn't the most gracious hero. (laughs) When General Dwight Eisenhower actually tried to congratulate him and give him a little pat, Chip bit him.
0: Well, he is still a dog after all, but that behavior didn't keep Chips from getting other honors. He was awarded the Silver Star for valor. He got a Purple Heart for his wounds, which ended up making him the most decorated dog hero of World War II. Unfortunately for Chips... Or, you know, maybe not so much. He probably didn't mind getting all those medals or losing them. But all of the media attention surrounding his awards attracted the attention of the commander of the Order of the Purple Heart, who felt that by honoring a dog, they were really demeaning all of the men who had been awarded a Purple Heart. He complained to President Roosevelt and the War Department, and ultimately, Chip's medals were taken away, and the dog was returned to his family. Like I said, Chip's probably didn't mind, but it is a little a little sad
1: yeah i doubt he was too offended by it and he got to go back to pleasantville so <laughs> didn't wouldn't want to, to do that hang out with uh the general anymore <laughs> there's actually i found when researching this there's a 1990 i think disney film that's called chips the war dog and i think it's based on this story i'm interested to know if anyone's seen it i certainly haven't i I would have thought that I'd seen every dog movie.
0: Well, we were discussing motivational animal movies earlier today, Homeward Bound. And I'd like to see some movies made on these war dog stories. They're pretty interesting.
1: Maybe not this last one, though. This last one's kind of a sad one. This one's The Tear Jerker. So a lot of stories you see about war dogs touch on the special bonds that develop between the animals and the soldiers, particularly between dogs and handlers. They work alongside each other. They sleep alongside each other. Some handlers stayed with the same dog from training to the battlefront. So it makes sense that they would get close. But a great example of this bond is the story of an 85-pound German shepherd named Bruiser who served in Vietnam.
0: So in September of 1969, a young Marine named John Flannelly was leading a 12-man patrol with Bruiser 12 miles south of Da Nong. And when Flannelly and Bruiser stepped into a clearing, suddenly Bruiser's ears perked up. And then, as Flannelly put it, quote the whole clearing seemed to explode they were being fired on from all sides it seemed everything from grenades to mortar rockets hit the clearing and the sergeant yelled to move back but it was too late flannelly was hit his chest was actually ripped open so that he could see his own lung and he tried to shoot back but he couldn't move it seemed like he was a goner
1: so at that point, thinking that he's not going to survive, he tries to save his dog. He told Bruiser to leave, to get out of there, to get out of danger. But the dog stayed and started kind of tugging at his shirt. So Flannelly reaches up and he, he grabs Bruiser's harness and Bruiser is able to drag him to a shell crater hole about 300 yards away to kind of protect him. And uh, Bruiser took two bullets in the process while he was doing this. And Flannelly was taken to the nearest mobile army hospital. And later he was reunited with Bruiser in an interview with the Tampa Tribune in 1999, Flannelly recalled this reunion. He said, quote, he climbed on the bed talking about Bruiser, put his head on my shoulder and licked my face. I just held him and cried. What do you say to someone who saved your life?
0: So, yeah, it's a tearjerker. Flannelly, whose life had been saved, did finally make it home. But no one knows what ultimately happened to Bruiser. And this is true for many of the thousands of dogs that served in Vietnam. Although a lot of the World War II military dogs were successfully returned to civilian life, detrained essentially and adopted out. Vietnam War dogs were considered equipment and in fact surplus equipment even if they were spoken for by handlers. So when the U.S. pulled out the dogs were left behind.
1: Yeah, some of them were just left there and abandoned. Some were turned over actually to the Vietnamese army. Some were destroyed and I think about a couple hundred I read were returned to the U.S. So kind of a sad ending for these dogs. But we don't want to end on a sad note.
0: No, we don't. Not not a note as sad as that. Um, fortunately, times have changed since the days U.S. war dogs were just left behind as surplus equipment. Since the average training costs, I mean, we can look at this from a real rational perspective first. The average training costs of these war dogs is about $20,000 to $40,000 per dog. So while they're in service, they're treated Very well, you know, they get the best care. They're provided with top equipment, bulletproof vests, doggles. They're seriously called that. You should look up a picture if you want to see dogs looking kind of cool with sunglasses. Yeah. And they do get serious veterinary treatment, including, I didn't know this, psychological treatment if the need occurs. Yeah,
1: doggy PTSD. I didn't even realize that. There was such a thing. But after several deployments, most dogs get to retire at about age 8 or 9, and then they're adopted out. A bill that was passed in 2000 allowed for this after dogs are detrained, of course.
0: Many end up with their handlers after that. A natural fit. You'd imagine they'd have the ultimate war buddy sort of bond. But some dogs don't just go into a life of pure retirement. They are, after all dogs like German Shepherds, you know, ones that like to have some sort of job or task that they do. So some join a police force or work for a security agency, and then some really just do kick back. I, I read a quote from one former handler who was Adopting his dog. And he said, I'm going to make life so easy for him. He's going to be able to do whatever he wants and and finally relax a little bit.
1: And I think it's interesting that more and more people are interested in adopting these war dogs now, these retired war dogs. Going back to the recent news we were talking about earlier, I think something like 400 applications were put in for adopting these dogs after the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound.
0: Well, and I also came across information about adopting dogs that weren't war dogs. They weren't trained by the U.S. military. They weren't retiring. They were dogs usually from Afghanistan or Iraq that were strays or abused and had been taken in by soldiers there and kind of turned into like the mascot dogs of today cared for and ultimately when the soldiers were ready to redeploy or couldn't keep the pets at the... There were cats involved, too. Couldn't keep the pets at the base... There were some organizations that had come into existence to take in those animals and help them with any veterinary needs, hold them through quarantine, and eventually send them to the U.S. to live with the soldiers or to join other adoptable families. A couple of them were the Soldiers Animal Companions Fund and NAUZAD. I'm not sure if that's how that one is pronounced, but um, I I just was looking at the little pictures of the <laughs> the animals soldiers had adopted and it was also kind of heartwarming. This has been a it's been a heartstrings pulling episode, hasn't it? Diana? It really has.
1: Um well maybe for some more cool or uplifting photos we should post some of those photo essays that you sent me earlier of war dogs.
0: Yeah, there are a couple great Rebecca Schaefer war dog galleries that went viral on the internet a while back and they have amazing pictures, dogs jumping out of planes, dogs with these high-tech doggles on, as I mentioned earlier, or just dogs looking like dogs, cuddling with soldiers and looking cute. But, I mean, I really I enjoyed this, and I'd kind of like to hear from listeners about other dog war dog suggestions you might have, because I know we did stick mostly to World War One, World War Two, a little bit of Vietnam, a little Tudor stuff in there.
1: Yeah, it was a very U.S. focus, so I'd especially love to know about any international war dogs that we didn't learn about. I mean, we mainly focused on ones that we could find information on, but if there are others out there that you guys love, please send them to us. We're at History Podcast at works com, or you can look us up on Facebook
0: or on Twitter at Mist History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about war dogs, of old and war dogs today, how they're trained, all of that, we do have an article on the website. It's called How War Dogs Work, and you can search for it by looking for war dogs on our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future, Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney. And I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way. And I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends players coaches and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level here is canadian heptathlete georgia ellenwood the reason i won is because on that day i was confident i need to continue that mentality to understand that i can be an olympic athlete i can compete with the best in the world and just perform listen to the only way is through available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts